0: When you settle into a small village in the once-communist former Yugoslavia, you might notice how some things haven't really changed much.
1: Croatia was free. It could have anything it wanted now. Now what are they going to do with all of that? And the women just kept doing what they were doing, which was working all the time, and the men were kind of thinking about it.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, Jennifer Wilson explains what her young family learned from half a year in small-town Croatia. And after Francis Tappan lived in each country of the Balkan Peninsula he came back with a book's worth of observations, like this, about the Bulgarians. They do look after each other, and that's one thing that still exists today. Plus, tour guides from Italy
2: investigate the high-powered north of their country. Milan is less than 20 miles away from Switzerland. That reflects in the mentality, in the temperament, in the behavior, the lifestyle, the food. Life in the Balkans and northern Italy. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick
0: Steves. We'll explore what makes northern Italy different from the rest of the country from the perspective of two guides who live in the south coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. And an American who spent three years researching every country in the eastern half of Europe tells us about his bumpy ride through the Balkans in just a bit. First, let's look at the impact that half a year in eastern Europe had on one young American family. Jennifer Wilson returns to Travel with Rick Steves right now to look back on the experiment she and her husband tried out a few years ago. They moved with their two young children from Des Moines in Iowa to live as a family in the mountain village her great-grandparents came from in Croatia. Jennifer's book about their experience is called Running Away to Home, our family's journey to Croatia in search of who we are, where we came from, and what really matters. Jennifer, good to see you again.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Now you took your kids out of the beautiful, privileged American lives away from all their soccer practice and ballet lessons and plopped them in the middle of nowhere in Croatia where nobody even spoke English. What kind of a mother are you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a good question. I think they asked me that the first time I suggested that they go. You know, for me it seemed like we lived in a pretty privileged place and the kids would be very comfortable in Iowa. But it's not necessarily informing them what the rest of the world is like when they're in a place where everybody looks like them and speaks like them and they're always comfortable. And I also think we spend a lot of time calibrating what we want in our marriage and what we want from our jobs. We don't spend enough time deciding what we want to be as a family. And so my husband Jim and I decided that we wanted to go to a quiet place and think about that together. And at about that same time, my great great-aunt had passed away, and she, before she died, she wrote her own autobiography and said that she, our family was from a little village in Croatia called Merkapaj, and just got me thinking, wouldn't it be great to go back and start again there?
0: Wow. So you took the gang there. Tell us, just set up the, the situation. What was the village like? Uh, what were the people like? How were you received?
1: You know, the village is quite small. They say there's 800 people living there, but I never saw 800 people when I was traveling there. Um, it's really just sort of a two-road town, and it seems almost like it's been suspended in amber over the past 100 years since my great-grandparents left. There's still a lot of old ways. People still mow their lawns with a sling blade, and there's still cattle on the first floor of some people's houses. They live a lot from their yards, from the gardens, and and harvesting fruit from the trees. It's just a very ancient way of life, and it's a very quiet way of life.
0: Now, you were there with two kids. Uh, Sam was seven, and Zadie, your daughter, was four. That's right. Did other mothers uh, support you? Did you have a a circle of friends among mothers? or What did people think of you, just from a a parenting point of view, in the village?
1: You know, it was a little bit tough at first, because everybody really liked Jim. He's a very outgoing Midwestern guy, and he would go off to the uh, cafe bar and have a drink with the guys, and... I was a little bit more stymied at the very beginning. I mean, I'm a I'm a very sort of organized, let's get things done type of mom, which was great for the planning process. But if you land in a little village in the middle of another country and you don't have to drive anybody to soccer practice and there's no doctor's appointments to make, I really had this sort of crisis of who am I if I don't drive anybody around anymore? It took me a while to adjust to that. And it wasn't until the women started um, sort of tucking me under their wing, which happened after I did sort of the universal signal of friendship and I baked everybody a peach cobbler on my block (laughs) and all of the women kind of came out of the house and decided to start taking care of this poor, lost American woman. And so that, that was
0: a coup. You, that was your way to get accepted yeah. with the villagers. <laughs> I wasn't going to be going
1: to the bar with the guys every night, but boy, I could bake a peach cobbler, and that's pretty much all I could make.
0: Talk about that, the sort of the social difference between the guys hanging out at the bar, I would imagine, and the, the women. Was it divided? What was it
1: like? Yeah, you know, it was divided. For the generations, like for my generation, I'm 42 and older, the women just didn't really go to the bar. They stayed home. They took care of the house. They were the ones in the garden and washing the cars and going to the jobs, you know, multiple jobs every day. And the guys would meet and talk at the bar for coffee in the morning and for beer at night. Um, But the younger generation, it's different. Uh, This is, you know, I'm talking just this particular village. The younger generation, everybody kind of hung out together in the bar at night. So it worked out um, more equally then.
0: What's your take on on the situation for older people? Did it sort of uh, offend you?
1: You know, it was tough for me at first um, as a feminist walking into town and saying, "Okay, so she's out in the garden working all day and you've been sitting in the front yard with a beer that rubbed me wrong at first. um, But then I just realized, you know, it's not really for me to say. It was how it was. And I focused more of my energy just trying to get to know the women. And that meant weeding the garden along with them. Um, They had their own coffee clutch in the morning. Where you'd do a clear shot of Rakia, and then you'd have your coffee, and that was when we'd do our chatting.
0: Who was happier among the villagers, the men or the women?
1: That's a great question. I would say the women, hands down. Everybody feels better when they're working, and they're they know they're what they're doing with their lives. And I felt like there was there was almost a a sense of loss, since the Balkan Wars. It's what I saw sort of as a parallel between the village itself. And in my own country, you know, Croatia was free. It could have anything it wanted now. Now what are they going to do with all of that? And the women just kept doing what they were doing, which was working all the time. And the men were kind of thinking about it.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jennifer Wilson. And Jennifer uh, did a creative and courageous and, and very impressive thing. Picked her family up from Des Moines, Iowa, and moved them to a humble little village in the hinterlands of Croatia she wrote about this adventure in her book Running Away to Home. I understand we've got your daughter on the phone. You're going around the country right now and uh, talking up your book, and your daughter's back at home and ready to get in on the conversation, right? That's right. Zadie, are you there? Yes. How old are you, Zadie?
3: Seven and a half.
0: Seven and a half. And tell us, what do you remember about Croatia?
3: Um, I remember that there were three girls, and every single day I would get on to the oldest girl's bike and I would ride up front and she would ride, and we would go to the store and we would get popsicles and we would come back and eat them
0: and how did you talk to her because did she speak English?: Yes, I understand that that you're kind of a picky eater. What did you eat in Croatia
3: Our back home, would send us macaroni and cheese (laughs) and spaghetti, and that's all I would eat.
0: But what about if that didn't come and you had to eat or you'd go starving? Was there anything you could eat in the village? Did you like the bread?
3: The second only thing I would eat was probably pigs and sheep.
0: You ate the pigs and the sheep?
3: Yes. Mm -hmm. Sadie,
1: did you think that those kids in the village were much different than other kids?
3: In some ways, in some ways not.
0: Okay. How were they different?
3: Um, well, they s- would speak a different language.
0: And how were they the same?
3: They all played the same games.
0: Oh, well, that's great. Are you ever going to go back?
3: I want to.
1: Zadie, what was your favorite afternoon snack that you and the, you and Sammy used to go over with the girls to the shkola to eat?
3: We would climb the trees and pick apples.
0: Well, Zadie, I'm glad that you had that experience, and thanks for sharing some of what you remember with all of us, okay? Okay. Hey, do you know a single Croatian word? Do you know how to say uh, goodbye or hello or anything?
3: I know how to say apple.
0: How do you say apple? Yabuka. Yeah, Yabuka. Yeah,
3: <laughs>
0: okay, bye-bye.
1: Bye, Zadie.
3: Bye.
0: Now when you're back, you've been back for a couple of years, and you look back on it, What are the lasting consequences? Uh, What are the upside, and and is there a downside?
1: You know, the upside for us, I think, is that there's a connection between us that is what we went there for. There was a moment uh, at the beginning when we first got to the village, and I have to say that I sort of doubted myself. You know, when you first asked at the beginning of the interview what kind of mother does this? You know, Don't think that wasn't running through my mind every day for the first few weeks, especially when Sam was homesick a lot. And there was one night about two weeks in and I was just exhausted and he was exhausted and he was crying. He missed the dog and he missed his grandparents and he missed his friends. And I don't know where it came from within me, but I started talking to him saying, you know, wherever we go, if the four of us are together and we're loving each other, that's home. It's not about where we are, just the same way that God is not a church. Home is where your family is and you're loved. And I think I was saying that just as much to myself as I was to him. But from that time on, Sam and I and the, you know, all four of us, I think really have, have taken that to heart. And, and that's, that's a connection that I don't, I don't think as, as we're growing older as a family together, that we're going to, we're going to lose that.
0: Did you pick up wisdom just from the villagers in any ways?
1: You know, I did. And it was it was through things that they didn't even mean to teach us. There were things that they meant to teach us. The women meant to teach me how to knit with five needles and how to make sarma. Um, they you know, meant to teach Jim how to build his own spit. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But the thing that I learned the most was, you know, I met family members that I never knew I had, and I spent an afternoon with them and, It was a moving experience, but it was nothing like living next door to these complete strangers for four months who really took care of us in every way. You know, they took care of us emotionally and spiritually and physically, bringing us vegetables from their garden to make sure we had fresh produce because we weren't there early enough to plant our own. They taught us that family is about who you love, and and now it feels like we have family In this little mountain village across the world, in this place that three years ago we didn't even know existed.
0: When you said goodbye finally, what was that
1: like? You know, the going away party that we had there, it was an official party that, you know, they they slaughtered a few sheep. We sat at this long harvest table, and and always when you're gathered with Croatians, they're going to bring out a musical instrument and start singing. And that's when the party meant the most to all of us in my family. I mean, we heard all of the village songs again, and and it was, we were part of it. You know, we were part of everything.
0: You were part of the fabric of that village, and That's then you were right. leaving. So That's you're right. still part of it. They remember you.
1: That's right. And they're always wondering when we're going to come back. And, you know, it's a, it's a great question because, you know, it takes a lot to get four people to a tiny mountain village in Croatia. I would know?
0: imagine you're going you're to do it. Jennifer Wilson? So fascinating, so fun, such an inspiration to talk to you about giving our kids a broader view on the world and having the courage to actually make that happen. Thanks for being here.
1: Oh, it's an honor to be here.
0: You can listen to Jennifer's earlier interviews about living in Croatia with her family in our radio archives. Search Behind the Radio tab at ricksteves.com. Let's delve deeper now into Croatia and its neighbors in the Balkans next with long-term traveler Francis Tapon. We're at 877-333-RICK or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. Croatia just added into the European Union. Its sibling neighbors from the former Yugoslavia are eager to join with Bulgaria, Slovenia, and Romania and also become member states of the EU. But life's a little bumpy in the Balkans, as Francis Tapon learned firsthand on his multi-year journey across Eastern Europe. Francis is an unusual kind of traveler. He likes to stay a lot longer than the average vacationer and get to know the character of a place. He took three years to explore each country in the eastern half of Europe and wrote a witty country-by-country summary of the region called The Hidden Europe, what Eastern Europeans can teach us. Right now, Francis is well into his plan to visit each of the 54 countries of Africa over a three-year period. Last time we checked, he was rounding his way through West Africa. Before he left, he joined us to talk about his experience getting to know the Balkan nations of Southeast Europe, what they're like, what makes them such rivals with each other, and even a few lessons they might be able to teach us in the West about life. Francis, thanks for taking us through the Balkans today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you, Rick. We hear the term the Balkans a lot. What exactly does that mean?
4: So the Balkans is a geographic region that you would start up by the Danube River and basically go south of it all the way down into Greece. And so that encompasses what the former Yugoslavia, as well as Bulgaria, as well as Albania, and even a northern part of Greece,
0: and Macedonia, of course. I didn't realize that. So the Danube is sort of the north border of the Balkans?
4: That's right, yeah. it's There's two rivers. There's the Sava River and the Danube River on the northern part, and together... They form the northern border of the
0: Balkans, and then sweep all the way down the, to the Peloponnesian Peninsula in Greece, and that's the Balkans. We always know about the the rivalries and the tumultuous past of the Balkans. Uh, you've got former Yugoslavia, uh, and then you've got Bulgaria, and there's Albania. Talk a little bit about Bulgaria. It's they used to joke that Bulgaria was like the the 17th. Republic of the Soviet Union or, or something like this. Its its loyalty and its submissiveness to Moscow was was legendary. Does that communist ghost still survive in Bulgaria today?
4: In a sense, yes, that Bulgarians still have a very healthy relationship with Russians. If Russians go to Bulgaria, they kind of feel at home. They feel like a distant cousin visiting because they share the Cyrillic alphabet. So that's one thing. And their Slavic languages are roughly similar. I mean, they can kind of understand each other when they speak. And so as a result, there's a little bit of proximity that still exists today. So yes, to some extent that, that you could still say that today, that there is a familiarity between them.
0: Now, in your book, The Hidden Europe, you quoted a British survey that called the Bulgarians the least motivated people. How did they come to that conclusion? And is that what you found when you were traveling in Bulgaria?
4: Yeah. In Bulgaria, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of Bulgarians there. I stayed with them. And they still have a somewhat cynical view about their government and about their prospects. And so they had this tendency to complain about their future. And so that's the state that they're in. And I think that that is one of the problems that keeps them from being super motivated they also have more vacation days
0: than anybody else out there so they don't
4: really work all that hard they have practically two months worth of vacation if you add
0: them all up if you include sick days I suppose if you grew up during the communist times in Bulgaria you'd grow up thinking there's no win-win there's just lose-lose and honesty and hard work doesn't pay and you can only trust family and, and close friends
4: that is true, but it's interesting why did they keep some of that cynicism and other ex-communist countries did not. Mm. And so yeah. I'm not sure exactly why it is, but I would I kind of point to the collectivist attitude that still exists in Bulgaria, which has a, a benefit. In other words, they do look after each other and they do help each other to a large extent. And I was invited to a lot of the Bulgarians' homes sight unseen. I mean, in one case, I was able to stay at a person's place that hadn't even met me. They just introduced me through a friend. Oh, so, yeah. They, they do look after each other, and that's one thing that still exists today.
0: Beautiful people. Uh, my first uh, experience in Bulgaria, I was in Plovdiv and asked a man where the bus station was, and he didn't speak any English at all, but he left his place, and he walked me four blocks to show me where the bus station was. And uh, later on, I, uh, he introduced me to his uh, children who spoke English, and we became lifelong friends. Beautiful, beautiful people. If you can uh, get a chance to meet them, I, I've got an affinity for Bulgaria myself. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Francis Tappan, and Francis' book is The Hidden Europe, reporting on his three-year adventure through all 25 countries in Eastern Europe. One country I don't know is Albania, and you called Albanians the friendliest people that you met in Eastern Europe. How so? Yeah, Albanians were interesting because
4: They were closed for so long. They were under Everett Hoxha, which was a dictator. And they were not even doing business with the Soviet Union. They were not doing business with communist China. They were certainly not doing business with the West or the U.S. And so they were completely closed off in the 1990s. 20 years ago, they opened up. And so they, I think, are super friendly because they're just so happy that the world has decided to come visit them. And so as a result, everywhere I went, even people who barely speak their language, I met this one guy, he was about 63 years old, and he invited me into his home. I stayed for dinner, and yet he didn't speak any English at all, zero, and we were struggling using Russian. But that kind of friendliness was quite strong everywhere I went in Albania.
0: I've heard nothing but rave reviews from adventurous travelers who who go into Albania. It sounds like one of the great new places for, for thrilling kind of travel in Europe. I, I know the only um, connection with Albania a lot of tourists have is when you rent a car in Italy, you got to pay a theft insurance on the car because they're worried about the car ending up stolen and going all the way to Albania, that's what they always say. You wrote about how during communism, uh, in 45 years of communism, only two non-government members ever received a permit to own a car. There was only 2,000 cars in the entire country. Now they've got 55,000 cars or something, and... Uh, and they, they have a society not really built to manage uh, the traffic. Is that causing any sort of uh, congestion or, or confusion in the capital city, all these cars that they didn't have before?
4: Yeah, there's a there's incredible congestion out there and a lot of pollution that still exists. It's the quality of the air is kind of bad. But the interesting thing, Rick, is that if you go to southern Albania, along the coast, along the Ionian Sea, there, also, there's very little traffic, and they have these brand-new roads. There used to be really very few roads, at least certainly not paved roads, but now they've recently made some new paved roads that go along the southern Albanian coastline, which is fabulous, and they're you know brand-new and, hmm. and great to drive on.
0: I've been in several countries in Europe where I remember there were no freeways, and, and now they're laced with freeways because of European money. Who's paying for the new infrastructure in Albania? Is, is Europe taking an interest, or are they just getting it together internally?
4: They're getting most of it internally together, but the U.S. has helped a lot, and that's one of the mm. things that is interesting. When you tell them that you're a U.S. citizen, people really are happy because uh, it's one of those countries, even during the the Bush era where we were wildly unpopular throughout uh, Europe, in Albania and in Kosovo, people were very friendly. The Albanians there were very happy, mainly because Clinton, Bush, Obama have all given heavy support to Albanians and the Albanian cause. And so, as a result, they're very happy and welcoming to see any kind of Americans there, which is interesting because, of course, a lot of them are officially Muslims. So, about 70% hmm. of the country are Muslim. And so, this is, you know, kind of eye-opening because we kind of think of Muslims as more antagonistic to the mm-hmm. U.S., but uh, these ones are certainly not.
0: They're probably happy to be done with their wacky dictator, that
4: Hoxha. Talk about Hoja for a moment. He was a guy who did not trust anybody, and so as a result, he broke off relations with every single person, and they they constructed 700,000 pillbox bunkers and put them all around the country in order to defend itself. So today you go around the countryside or even in the cities, you'll see these little pillbox bunkers made out of concrete, very hard to move, that they're still kind of sitting there, whether they're on the beach <laughs> or whether they're on the side of the road. And the intention was... If anybody decides to invade Albania, they will have these bunkers to defend themselves, and they will not have to depend on any foreign power to defend itself.
0: Little souvenirs to the rule of Envar Hoxha. Is that his name, Envar Hoxha? That's right. Francis Tappan, sharing some of his insights into the cultures and character of the Balkan nations of southeastern Europe with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book is called The Hidden Europe, And in it, he profiles what he calls the history, food, language sites, stereotypes, and drinking habits of 25 countries in the eastern half of Europe, along with his own colorful adventures as he lived for a while in each country. By the way, we recorded our interview with Francis a few months ago. Today, he's actually on a three-year adventure into each of Africa's 54 countries. He started in Morocco, and he's working his way around the continent counterclockwise down the west coast of Africa That's where he was last time we checked. There's more on his website, francistapon.com. We also have a link to Francis in this week's show details in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Matt from Kihei, Hawaii, emailed us. Matt writes, I've traveled a lot in the area and have had the experience of being warned about the dangers lurking in the next country. Of course, the danger never materializes, but it's sad that the people of the Balkans, bound by similar music, traditions, history, culture, food, and often language, see their neighbors as others, though I believe this is slowly changing with the EU influence. Yeah, that's interesting, Francis. What's your take on, on this notion in the Balkans that my neighbor's neighbor is my friend?
4: It's fascinating. I would uh, The way that writer said it was very well said. In other words... There is definitely some skepticism about people who are right next to you. And the popularity of your country increases the farther away you get from it. And definitely something in the Balkans that still exists is this kind of animosity that's kind of uh, left over from the wars that they've had between each other. Still, there's some hope that the younger generation, they were born 20 years ago, and so now they're Mm -hmm. kind of growing up, and they didn't grow up under war. And so
0: they are looking at themselves with fresh new eyes. And so there is hope. I was so impressed by the hopefulness in Mostar, in Bosnia, where uh, people from the Christian and uh, the Muslim communities uh, were getting together just a generation after their parents were sniping at each other. When we're talking about the Balkans, most of that is former Yugoslavia. Do you remember, Francis, the phrase they used to say, Yugoslavia is... Seven nations, six countries, five languages, and all the way down to one leader, Tito. Uh, do you remember that that phrase that sort of defined how diverse and confused Yugoslavia was? I don't remember that specific
4: phrase, but it definitely is a confusing place when you're looking at it from the outside. And during the whole Bosnian Wars and the Croatian-Serbian Wars and the Kosovo War, all those stuff, I kind of tuned out, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I decided The only way I'm going to really understand this region is to go there and visit it. And today, it's super safe. You can go and visit anywhere in ex-Yugoslavia and feel very safe there. And the only way, I think, to decode it is actually go on the streets and talk
0: with the people. I love that section in your book where you talk about 15 things you must do to be a Serb. Of course, Serbs are the sort of the um, foundation, I think, of uh, former Yugoslavia. The word literally means the union of the South Slavic people, and I think the Serbs kind of dominated that union. You you list 15 things in your book to you got to do to be a Serb. Review a couple of them for us now, please. Uh, drink rakia like water
4: is one of the things. This is from uh, Momo Kapoor's book. He's a Serbian. He ta- he wrote a book about the guide to the Serbian mentality. So he talked about the fact that you have to live with your parents for at least 30 years. You have to fight with your neighbors. You have to see more soccer games and less theater. You have to save all your money to go to the sea during the summer, and then you have to spend more money than you make. You have to sleep late, and you have to be an expert about police. And finally, you have to
0: swear often. Wow, to be a Serb. That tells a lot right there. (laughs) Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Gretchen is on the line in Minneapolis. Gretchen, thanks for your call.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was traveling in Croatia last fall, and at one point spoke with a a young tour guide who, as we were discussing EU membership for Croatia and other countries in the area, she expressed the opinion that in view of the long, long history of, as she put it, the inability to play well together in the sandbox, using her words, um, that that didn't bode well for how EU membership in the future might go for these countries. Can you speak to that issue?
0: Boy, that's interesting because the the thought that they don't play together in the sandbox, so make them join a bigger club and they'll have more uh, adult supervision. You're talking about the Balkans. I would say that that is true,
4: that if we can somehow include them into the EU, these borders will disappear for a large part. And as a result, they will no longer see themselves as us and them, but they'll see each other as a family. And that is the intention the problem is, of course, the EU doesn't really, is not too enthusiastic about in expanding anymore because of the fact that they've had all these financial problems as of late. What's your hunch, Gretchen?
1: Well, I think
5: this young woman was taking the position that, that probably would not go very well.
4: One thing I would say is that she's right about the fact that there was skepticism among, among the Balkan people. They're on kind of on the fence. They're kind of like, oh, I don't know if this is going to help us or hurt
0: us. My guess is that uh, if there is peace and if there's economic good times, these uh, long-standing uh, squabbles between ethnic groups in former Yugoslavia would be uh, back And with the EU, the strength mm-hmm. of the European Union, I think peace is a good chance, and now they've just got to work on economic good times, and maybe that'll bring them some hope. Gretchen, thanks for your call. Yep. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Francis Tapon, and his book is The Hidden Europe, reporting on his three-year adventure through all of Eastern Europe, all 25 countries. Francis, uh, you finished your book talking about where you would live if you lived anywhere in Eastern Europe, and you said you'd live in Montenegro, right in the heart of former Yugoslavia, in the heart of the Balkans, Montenegro. Why? Because it's just such a beautiful place. It's the southernmost fjords of
4: Eastern Europe, of all of Europe, in fact. And so you feel like you're in Norway, but with good weather. It's just spectacular. You have these Italian-like villas, Venetian towns like Kottr, set amongst these rising big, fat mountains there. Montenegro is small. It's only the size of Connecticut, and yet it has this wonderful park called Durmitor National Park. It has uh, the mountains. It has the sea. It has great weather it has it all, and yet and only about an hour or two away is Dubrovnik, another amazing jewel in Eastern Europe. And so that, to me, is why I picked it.
0: Would you live in the Gulf of Kotor or in the big city to the south or up in the, the high plateau?
4: I would prefer being right in Kotor itself, yeah. in the old town. And, you know, a lot of people say,
0: oh, it's fjord-like. Well, a lot of people don't know what fjords are, but you can really say the Gulf of Kotor in Montenegro is fjord-like in its dramatic beauty. We've been speaking with Francis Tapon. His book is The Hidden Europe, reporting on a three-year adventure through all of Eastern Europe. Specifically today, we've been talking about the Balkans. Francis, assuming we're going to be heading off to the Balkans now, what are a couple of words we should be sure to have in our arsenal so we can connect with those people?
4: You say, "dobrodan," which is good day, and Hvala, which is thank you.
0: Francis Tapon, Hvala. Hvala. You can share your travel impressions and memories with us in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link to send us your original haiku in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are a few we thought you might enjoy.
6: Starla Little from Beaufort, South Carolina, writes that her family is getting ready to take a road trip. She says, We love seeing where the open road takes us. She sends us this haiku in anticipation of their vacation. Summertime Road Trip load up the car with children, fill tank, keep driving. Priscilla Morin from San Diego writes us this cautionary note after a trip to a famous site on the U.S.-Canadian border. Niagara Falls. Antsy three-year-old daughter. Honeymoon on hold. Rick Hyde of Hiram, Ohio sends us a concise home state brag in the form of a haiku three syllables from just four letters? It's more than you think, Ohio. And Neil Ruddy from Carlisle, Iowa, writes us a trio of haiku about his weekend in Austin, Texas. Best people watching in Austin. Broken spoke on a Saturday night. Singing cream at free highball karaoke sounds like tired starlings. Austin never met geezer singers, tattoos, or dogs it didn't like.
0: Our next stop takes us to the north of Italy. That's where you'll find the industrial and business center of Milan, where fashion is taken very seriously and where nearby lakes form their own freshwater riviera. Our guides to Italy join us in just a minute to take your calls at 877-333-7425. It's travel with Rick Steves. When you think about Italy, and Italy I think about a lot. Uh, first thing, of course, Rome, Venice, Florence, but let's not go there now. Let's go to the north of Italy and, and really, this is an underappreciated corner of Italy. It's a thriving part of Italy. It's a proud part of Italy and it's a part of Italy worth checking out. And I'm joined by two guides from Italy today and we're going to talk about exactly that, the best of the north of Italy. Ricardo Panareo and Anne Long. Anne and Ricardo, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. We're glad
2: to be here. Thank you, buonasera. Buonasera,
0: Ricardo. You know, you've got the north, you've got the south, uh, you've got quintessential Italian emotions and everything, and then you've actually got a little bit of a more serious, more organized Italy. They say, for instance, uh, you know, for every church in Rome,
2: you've got a bank in Milano. Now oh, you're yeah, right. Uh, you have to consider also the fact that uh, Milan is less than 20 miles away from Switzerland.
6: Okay. So, you know,
2: that reflects in the mentality, in the temperament, in the behavior, the lifestyle, the food. There's even oh, L- so. Lombard is a part of, of Italy, right? And, of that's, course. and that would be, uh, have a little bit of German in the blood. Absolutely, absolutely. Don't forget that Lombardia, Lombardy, Lombardia, is the pulling locomotive of the Italian economy. Yeah. You know, it's one of the 20 regions, but that's where we have one-third of the entire national industrial production concentrated
0: And long. You're an American, but you've lived in Italy for 30 years. That's right.
5: I've been uh, over 30 years down in the south of Italy, but, of course, I lead groups all over Italy, north and south.
0: When you and your neighbors think about uh, looking from the Rome area or the Naples area up to the north, what do you think?
5: Well, of course, the the southern Italians don't have a very loving relationship with the northerners by any means, and uh, I find it very... They are all very emotional people, but the northerners are business people, And the Southerners are fun and games.
0: Fun and games in the South. Now, if you're in the North, do you feel like you're subsidizing the fun and games in the South, Ricardo?
2: It depends. You know, in the North, there are so many people. Sometimes we we say that probably because we are envious of the good time that the people in the South are having because they have everything. They have the history. I mean, we have it in the North as well, but, you know, uh, the South is just 3,000 years of history in the South, even well before the Romans. They have the sun, they have the food, Now, in the north, in Milano, you do have the fashion. Of course. And tell us about the fashion in Milano. You know, in Milan, uh, if you think about Milan and Paris split 80% of the world creation in fashion. Is that right? The designers. 80%? 80% between Mm -hmm. Milan and Paris. So, if you are, you know, a shopper in that sense, you just go berserk if you go to Milan. Oh,
0: well, there's a shopping area in Milano. Oh, the beautiful Napoleon, what Via is it? Monte Napoleone.
2: So if you remember Monte Napoleon,
0: Mount oh, Napoleon, yes. you got yourself incredible shops. Give us mm-hmm. some ideas for,
2: like, just window shopping in well, Milano. Uh, Via Monte Napoleone is the most famous, where all the big names are. But you better go there with a jerry can of Valium because when you see the prices, then you just Right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big <laughs> wallet. Need a big yeah, wallet. Jerry can <laughs> of Valium mm. because when you see <laughs> the pi- <laughs> is that what you said? That's <laughs> funny. I
0: I I can't imagine a jerry I'm a, can of Valium I'm a, if I'm going to Milano. Or m- maybe better a, a rich, a rich lover, a rich lover. Now, lover. Lover. now that's, that's it. it, that's I, it. So, Ann, when you go to Milano, what's your advice for appreciating the fashion and well, yeah,
5: yeah, it definitely. I mean, what. Comes out in Milan, won't show up in the rest mm. of the world until mm. later on, so you're mm. right, avant-garde, of, so you're ahead, ahead of, of everyone, that's it. You're ahead of the
0: curve. That's, that's a nice right. idea for a souvenir.
2: Even the food
0: is stylish in
2: Milano. I it mean, is. you go to the, what's the famous Rostisseria Peck? I think? Probably you're referring to the Galleria, the famous Galleria. That's the place where they have the most famous uh, coffee bars, and uh, where the people go and have the aperitivo, which is the typical Campari. Maybe some of That's you... That's right. I think campari, campari was sort of a... sort of a, started out that That's whole thing right. yeah, or something. exactly. And many people from that area, they like adding a few drops of Campari in a Prosecco, which is a dry, white, sparkling Italian wine. Nothing to do with Spumante. Pumante is sweet. Okay. You, you drink it dessert. Now, would that be a, a northern yes. sort of drink?
0: yes. Anne Long and Riccardo Panareo are guiding us into their favorite parts of northern Italy today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877 333 7425, and you can share your favorite things about the north of Italy in our radio message board. Look for the link in the radio page at ricksteves.com. And Ricardo, you mentioned the aperitivo. There's a great tradition in Milan, especially, where every early evening food comes out on mm-hmm. the bars. You could buy a drink and call it a light dinner.
2: Yeah, it's it's a fashion that has spread in many other places in Italy where there are a lot of little picks. You know, for a fixed price, you have a good drink. Let's say it's a sort of a happy hour or something okay. like that. And you, it's almost a, a dinner. So if you're you not you a can big, spend eight euros or ten dollars
0: for you know, a drink, okay. get yourself a nice drink, and you've got enough food there to, yeah, to sure. be a light meal. Yeah, because and? the
5: Italians do not drink without eating. Oh, is that right? It's, a, it's, a, mm. it's part of their custom and culture, that you don't get drunk and everything. you got to have something in your stomach and then you can enjoy the drink.
0: And it's like a competition. There's some beautiful, beautiful food that comes out with those drinks. When I'm in Milano, one thing I'm impressed by along with the tradition of free appetizers with the drinks at happy hour and along with the gourmet delis and along with all the fashion is the power of the the city and the touch from Mussolini's time. You've got a lot of Mussolini Mm. architecture in Milano, that's right. What yeah. what are your thoughts on Mussolini's architecture in Milano? Well, of course,
5: you know he was down in Rome, and there's a lot of influence in Rome as well. But then, uh, slowly but surely, he had to make his way back up to Milan as he's being forced out uh, by the partisans, etc. So uh, his influence is all over in the major cities. The train
0: station is one that just makes you want to fall to your knees and say, yeah. you know, "Viva Italia!" That's right. I mean, and that's kind of what it was designed to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Well, you know, in every dictatorship, you have to impress your people, regardless of the color. It could be red, white, green. You know, you, you have so to. Be right prostitute. wing, left wing. You have to have a dictatorship. That yeah, says... you have to show very clearly who is in power. And you show it, you know, with big buildings, with big monuments, big display of military, so that people feel, well, we better don't open our mouth, because otherwise. And we're back in to
5: trouble. the times of Caesar. All Have the it, way back to them. All the way back, he has to show... That, that megalomania. That's right.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about northern Italy with Anne Long and Riccardo Panareo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Fred's on the line in Linwood, New Jersey. Fred, thanks for your call.
3: Thanks for uh, taking it, Rick. I appreciate it. Uh, we've toured southern Italy for the past few years, and we were thinking of heading north this year. We going to go in Tuscany, and I was thinking of heading up through the uh, lake region. And... Uh, he may have scared me out of Milano with the cherry uh, can of uh, Allium. Uh, <laughs> uh,
6: uh,
3: I was wondering if he could recommend an itinerary and maybe a base for a two or three day trip through uh, the lake region.
0: Well, uh, this, is, this is a great question for a lot of people. You know, which is the best lake? When we look at the map, you know, we've got Milan, which is the hub. The, you'll fly into Milan and all the train lines coming in and out of there. And then you've got the Alps just a bit to the north. And all along the southern fringe of the Alps, you've got these great lakes. And when you think of the lakes of Italy, not the, not the Riviera, but the freshwater Riviera, the lakes of Italy uh, right. that are within striking distance of all the fashionable Milan- Milanese. What, what lakes do you like?
5: Well, it really depends on what you are interested in doing. We have uh, Lake Como, and you can stay in Como, mm-hmm. and from there you can take beautiful boat rides along the lake to go to the different towns and see the different architecture and gardens. They have formal gardens and mm-hmm. private villas that you can go visit uh, that are absolutely wonderful and so relaxing. Or over to Lake Garda is what I would recommend because Lake Garda is a beautiful lake and you've got a city like Malcesine that you can stay at and it's easy to get over to Venice, it's easy to get to Verona, it's easy to get up into the mountainous area
0: from there too. So you've got Lake Garda, you've got Lake Como. Riccardo, what's another lake that would you would consider?
2: Well, you know, Lake Maggiore is the third very important lake, you know, with the famous island, uh, Borromeo Islands, with the Isola Bella. But if I can give a suggestion... Many people don't know that there is... There are also a couple little lakes next to the three big ones. Uh Do not miss the discovery of Lake Orta, with the O like over. O-R-T-A. O-R-T-A. And and, and how is Orta worth knowing about? Oh, well, it's very, very close to Lake Maggiore. It's much smaller, but because of the size, it's not so famous. And if you go there, there are villages which are but actually genuine, you know, because, of course, Lake Como and the other ones are so famous and beautiful, but then don't expect to be the only ones going there. You will right. be in the middle of the crowd, that's for sure. So, or L- is more or of the yes. laid back. Under there is a little under. island in the middle, San Giuliano, ah. and it's a little discovery, a little pearl. You know, usually ah. people appreciate when they discover places because Lake Como, you, you have an expectation. It's, it's beautiful. Discovered. It is beautiful. Yeah. It's the discovery. You know, uh,
0: I got to say, I like... Como, but it is very discovered. Lago di Como, oh, yeah. and uh, I think uh, George Clooney has discovered it too. It's yes. his favorite lake. Uh, yeah. A lot of people go to uh, Stresa, and that's uh, sort of a good connection with Switzerland. There, I think Lago yeah, Maggiore. Sure. sure. Uh, the Germans love Lake Garda for windsurfing,
2: yeah. also uh, because it's so close. Brenner Pass in, just a in three shot. hours, you, you are in Munich.
0: From mil- Munich, you can go down the there for windsurfing and a, yeah. some pasta, sure. and you got yourself a little Italian weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to stay away from the Germans, you might want to skip Lake Garda. Uh, yeah, th- sure. There's a town on Lake Garda that's very popular, but uh, it's Desensano. Uh, and yeah. then Sirmione. And, Sirmione. And, and for me, those were, were quite touristy. I didn't mm-hmm. like them so much. Mm-hmm. But I want to check out Orta. That sounds very Orta, good.
2: It's, it's, Orta, you know, it's out of the way. I mean, it's out of the way. It's, it's a quarter of an hour away from the motorway, but not yeah. many people go there. No. So it depends on your expectation. One yeah. thing nice about Lago di Como.
0: Uh, Verena is a nice town beautiful town Coma. little town and the cool thing about Verena is it's it's obscure but you can get there by train from sure. Milano in one hour so when you fly mm. into Milan and you're a little bit stressed out and jet laggy you don't need to stay in the big city from the Milan airport you go into town catch the train about a train every hour one hour north yeah. to Varana. Varena. I'm sorry, Varena. And they call that um, honeymoon country, luna di miele. Io di miele. Miele. Honey. honey. Say the word in Italian. Miele. Luna di miele. Miele. Honey. Sweet. You know, sweet. And and I got there and everybody was either uh, falling in love or well in love or Mm. on an anniversary or whatever. And it (laughs) is so, so romantic. (laughs) Just across the way is uh, Bellagio, Mm -hmm. which is the more elegant place. Yeah. But the sort of rough, intimate little town is Varena there you go Fred
3: I appreciate it that's a, that's a big help
0: good I hope that was helpful for you thanks for your call
2: okay sure B- thanks, ciao, ciao. have an aperitivo on us yeah <laughs> about uh, places. ciao
3: <laughs> grazie mille ciao <laughs> ciao, <laughs> ciao campari campari, campari, campari yes. in,
0: in its birthplace right there in the Victor Emmanuel gallery it's on right. the main square in Milano and Roberto's on the line in Jenkintown Pennsylvania Robert thanks for your call Hi, Rick. Good to talk to you all. Thank you. Do you have a comment or a question for our guides? Well, a kind of a question. Uh, I'm a real opera fan, and this is uh, the 200th uh, mm-hmm. anniversary of the birth of Verdi. Yes. And uh, I would like to kind of make a pilgrimage
2: to <laughs> Verdi country. Uh, I know that he was born in Roncole, which is near Piseto and he lived in that area with Santa Agata for uh, many years,
0: but uh, I was wondering if your folks had any uh, suggestions as to what kind of like special locations that have a Verdi Association I might visit in Milan and any of the surrounding areas. And also, which what place would be best to to base myself out of? And do I need to get a car to go to the different place? Okay, so first of all, uh, Verdi, uh, Giuseppe Verdi, Giuseppe Verdi, the great Italian opera composer, and uh, he his name is sort of uh, part of the Italian Risorgimento, I think, yes, the uh, right. unification movement. Mm-hmm. And remember, oh, in th- the heart and soul of it. Oh yeah. man, and and it's important when you you think of Verdi and the operas to think of Italian unification. And in the eighteen fifties. There were some uh, intellectual and artistic people who had this dream of uniting all the Italian-speaking states, but all the other countries around didn't really want a new country on the map. And through some very artful maneuvering and and, uh, fancy politics and revolutionary tactics, Italy was brought together. But during that period, you couldn't even wave the Italian colors without getting in trouble by the colonial overlords of Italy. And people would actually go to the opera houses and sing the Verdi operas, the arias. They'd stand on their seats and, and sing these arias as if they were uh, calling for Italian unity in secret, and I, I'm just so fascinated by the fact that the name Verdi even came yeah. to symbolize the Italian. Un- you, you probably know where I'm where I'm leading here, Robert, but Victor-
2: Victoria Emanuele re d'Italia. That's a I great. love it. V e
0: r d i. And for anybody who isn't uh, tuned into Italian unification and the great opera composer, that is really something. And for somebody like uh, Robert, who's got a passion for this, we need to have some ideas. Uh, uh, Riccardo, what what? Well,
2: I have the impression that Robert knows this stuff much better than we do, because uh, <laughs> i that uh, considering he's American, but he's a real uh, opera addict, I can I yeah. can say. So, Roncoli is the place where he was born. Uh, his house can be visited. It's open to the public. Of course, Milan and Parma. I would say, if I can suggest you a base, be based in Parma. Parma is a beautiful city. There is a fantastic theatre, one of the most important theatres of Italy, so most probably they will have performances going on all year. As far as performances, events are concerned, I'm afraid there will be so many that the only suggestion I can give you, go on the net and you search either La Scala in Milan or the Regio in Parma, the Theater, Teatro Regio or Roncole. I'm sure that there, mm. there will be great coverage of all the different events. I would say Parma also because of the food. Don't forget Parmesan. Gurn. Why don't we call it Parmesan? <laughs> because it comes from there. You know, so yeah,
5: I'm well, sure that they'll have uh, other events around mm, Italy as well because sure, he was a national figure for absolutely. Italy. And places maybe like Montecatini. he mm. spent 18 years mm. of his life going to Monticatini to take the waters, the curative waters. And I'm sure you know Puccini was right next door, mm. uh, Torre del Lago. So they'll have things going on in Tuscany as well to celebrate everywhere, Verdi.
0: Everywhere. So when you're traveling in Italy in 2013,
2: you'll find uh, be aware of a lot of Verdi activities. That's right. Sounds like
0: a great time to be there.
2: Yes, make sure that if you want to go to some events, book early, because otherwise it might be difficult to get in, eh? because they're organizing groups from all over the world of opera addicts. So,
0: Roberto in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, tell us what the, the letters of Verdi's name stand for again. i love to hear you say that.
2: Vittorio Emanuele great Italia. Fantastico. Oh, Perfect. Okay. A. A, A. <laughs> A grade. The local. A grade. A grade. And
0: that, that, the, the meaning of that uh, would be that when Italy was uniting, there was one king with Italian blood. He was the king of the little country of Piedmont, Victor Emmanuel, and they would say, when we get our act together and Italy is united, we already have our king, Victor Emmanuel, the king of Italy. All right, we'll celebrate that this year, Robert. Thanks for your call.
2: Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Arrivederci.
0: What a wonderful mix of culture and and beautiful natural wonders and. Now, that's, music why and <laughs> that's why Italy sells. That's
5: why Italy sells. That's true. Because we've got everything.
0: There is everything, and it's laid out in a beautiful way for the tourists.
5: And it's manageable. You can get around Italy. It's not like you have to go four thousand miles this way to see and, something. And you Pete can go is there.
0: full of Italians. <laughs> <laughs> God made Italy, and then it was so beautiful. He had to toss in some Italians that's just right. to be fair to everybody that's else. Right, well, a little color. Well, we can go there and find out. Out if that's actually a problem or not. <laughs> Anne and Ricardo, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on Italy, especially northern Italy here. Let's finish off just with one last little bit of advice you know, for the tourists to, to really distinguish their trip to northern Italy. Anne, when you think about uh, an American heading over to northern Italy what piece of advice would you give them as a parting uh, word of wisdom?
5: Yeah, I've always said that, you know, we you have to see the big cities, Milan and Venice. The, that's what we're known for. But don't miss the little places in between. Uh, head around, and when you see something pretty, stop and have a look, because two hours are never wasted. Uh, if you find some place that nobody else is at.
0: That is so true. i I'll never forget just tooling around Italy in my car and coming into a little no-name village. That's There's it. a cheese festival going on. That's right. Well, stop the car,
2: get out, and eat some cheese. That's right. Ricardo. Oh, yes. Then another little town that could be found in that way, it's a kind of discovery. Probably some of you had a nice Italian white wine called Soave. Soave. So, Soave It's named that way because there is a lovely little village which is not far away from Verona, which, I mean, deserves a visit. Pasoave is a tiny little village with a castle overlooking. You can visit some of the wineries. You're at the foot of the Alps. Uh, and it's just fantastic. It's one of those little things you're not expecting, but they will hit you really. Okay, so you know the wine. Now you can go to the village.
0: Suave. <laughs> Mille grazie, Ricardo and Anna.
2: Prego. Grazie. Ciao. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah
0: McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Gretchen Stroud for reading today's Travel Haiku and to KQED San Francisco for technical help. You can chat with Rick and his guests in our next recording sessions for Travel with Rick Steves. Go to the radio section of our website, include your email address in the link on the right-hand side of the page, and then we'll notify you of our next set of recording dates and topics.
6: That's where you can join us as a caller on the show. And you can hear Rick's update on how two towns in Italy's Cinque Terre region are recovering from flash floods from 2011. Look for the program extras with this week's show, and that's all in the radio section of
0: ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Eastern Europe and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.